0: Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 1 through 14. It's listed as the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord came upon me and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley And they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you. And you will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded and as I prophesied suddenly there was a noise a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. I looked and there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them And skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Thus ends the first reading. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi... The Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.' But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Thus ends the second reading.
1: The death of a good friend is never going to be anything other than dreadful. There are no easy answers and no quick solutions. The death of a loved one, as C.S. Lewis memorably put it, is an amputation, and although time may bring some healing... The loss remains forever part of us. Our two lectionary readings for this morning invite us to spend time face to face with human mortality. In Ezekiel's vision, we are confronted with a horrific scene. It is the aftermath of a war, and the vision is of the sight of a battlefield. Ezekiel sees an open mass grave with the bones of so many bodies lying intermingled and bleached by the sun, stripped clean by the carrion. It's hard to read this passage without thinking of the killing fields of more recent years from the war graves of Flanders and the Somme, to the European death camps of the mid-20th century, to more recent massacres of Bosnia and South Sudan, and I could go on. Mass death, mass burial, remain a tragic and traumatic part of the human story. So many lives lost, so many hopes and dreams cut short. And as Ezekiel wanders the field of bones in his vision, it speaks to him of his people, taken from their homeland into exile in Babylon, the victims of an ethnic cleansing from which it seemed there was no way back. For Ezekiel, death had come not just to a person, but to a whole nation. In a terrifying precursor to the Holocaust, the dry bones of Ezekiel's vision are the bones of his fellow Jews, broken and cast aside by the nationalistic ideology of another nation-state. And in the midst of this vision of devastation, Ezekiel hears the voice of the Lord asking him a question. Mortal, can these bones live? And in this question we are taken to the heart of the question of human mortality. Is death the end? Does death get the final word on life? These same questions echo through the story of the death of Lazarus, which takes us from the incomprehensible horrors of death on a grand scale, to the personalised agony of the death of a friend. And yet the questions are the same. Is death the end? Does death get the final word on life? Mortal? Can these bones live? The story of Lazarus is a long one, continuing even beyond the end of this morning's reading. And within the structure of John's Gospel, it is the seventh of seven signs of the kingdom, as they are known, which reveal to the reader the nature of the new world that is coming into being through Christ. And it's as if the author of John's Gospel invites us to enter into the detail of this story, to spend time with those who are affected by the death of Lazarus, and to share with them in their range of responses. One of the books which I have turned to again and again over the years, and I'm sure some of you will know it, is a study called On Death and Dying. It's quite dated. It was published in 1969 and written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a Swiss-American psychiatrist. Much more work has been done following on from her book, but her book stands as something of a marker, in much the same way that Freud's work stands behind much contemporary psychoanalysis. So her book stands still behind much of the work done in grief studies. And in her book, she proposed that those faced with a diagnosis of terminal illness typically experience grief in five stages – And these five stages of grief, as they have come to be known, can often be seen in the lives of those who have experienced a bereavement. And although they shouldn't be thought of as a programme to work through in order, nonetheless, many people have found them to be a helpful guide to what they find themselves experiencing as they are brought face to face with the reality of death. I've often thought that Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief can be seen in the various responses of the people around Lazarus in John's story of his illness and death. She suggests that the first stage of grief is that of denial. These are the, it simply can't be true, feelings Where we keep expecting the person to just walk back through the door. Or we convince ourselves that we can still hear them speaking or singing. The disciples do just this when Jesus tells them that Lazarus has died. He breaks it to them gently using the euphemism of sleep for death. He says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples grasp onto this and respond with hopeful denial of reality. Lord, they say, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be alright. And so Jesus has to tell them plainly. Lazarus, he says, is dead. ross says that denial is usually a temporary defence and will soon be replaced by partial acceptance. But what this acceptance brings with it is often the next stage in the grieving process, which for many people is an experience of anger. Anger is one of those emotions that it is hard to control and hard to predict. We don't know where it will strike or in which direction. Some people become angry at the doctors that have been caring for their loved one, convincing themselves that with better care things could have been different. Some people become angry at themselves, blaming themselves for letting their loved one down. Some people become furious at the person who has died. Furious with them for leaving us like this, for depriving us all of the future that has been planned together. Some people become angry at God, or at their friends, or their family, desperate for somewhere to direct the blame for the loss they have suffered. And all of this can seem quite negative, as if these feelings of anger are something to be avoided, or to be ashamed about, or to feel guilty about. Which is why I find it so helpful and interesting that the character in the Lazarus story, who exhibits anger, is none other than Jesus himself. When Jesus sees Mary and the other Jews weeping over Lazarus' death, we are told that he was greatly angered, greatly agitated. Some Bible translations have tried to play down the extent of Jesus' emotional response to the death of his friend. Our own NRSV describes him as being greatly disturbed and deeply moved. But while some may not like to think of Jesus exhibiting raw anger in the face of death, the reality of the words that John uses in the Greek here to describe Jesus' response are more indicative of uncontrolled anger than anything else. And it's not just Jesus. Some of those around him are angrily looking for someone to blame. And so they say loudly with accusation in their voices, could he who opens the eyes of the blind man not have kept this man from dying? Why did Jesus not heal our friend? Anger, it seems, is part of the human response to death. It is an appropriate and natural emotion in the face of tragic loss. The next stage of grief, which Kubler-Ross observed, is that which she called bargaining. She sees this as a helpful stage in the process of moving towards acceptance. And she says, if we have been unable to face the sad facts of the first, in the first period and have been angry at people and God in the second phase, maybe we can succeed in entering into some sort of agreement. She uses the example of a teenager who has been told that they cannot spend the night at their friend's house. Initially they may be angry and stamp their feet or lock themselves in their bedroom, temporarily expressing their anger towards their parents by rejecting them. But then they start to have second thoughts and coming out of their room they start volunteering to do tasks that they would never normally do in the hope that if they're especially good this week maybe they will get what they want next week. And maybe we're not so different sometimes in the face of death. We construct deals in our mind or ultimatums, and we address them to God or to the universe or to ourselves. If only this, then that is the pattern. If only I can have another year with them, I promise I'll be a better person. If only the doctors could have done things differently, then this person would still be with me. If only you'd been there, Jesus, then my brother would not have died. So says firstly Martha and later Mary. If only. If only. If only. And so the bargains and the regrets intermingle in the mind of the bereaved and we imagine a world where reality is different and we construct scenarios that would bring that world into being. Kubler-Ross notes that most bargains are made with God and are usually kept secret. And she suggests that they are usually motivated by quiet guilt. Where Martha and Mary are different is that they speak their bargaining aloud. They offer to Jesus their wish that the world was different, and he receives their plea, offering them compassion and comfort as they move towards acceptance of their brother's death. But there is another difficult stage to speak about, and that is the stage Kubler-Ross identifies as depression. For many of us, The experience of staring death in the face creates within us a void of emptiness that simply will not leave us. So great can this void become that our own existence ceases to matter in any meaningful way. The psalmist in the Old Testament, which we heard in our call to worship, knows this experience well. He says, out of the depth, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And we meet this uncontrollable sadness in the Lazarus story. And again, it is Jesus who embraces his humanity most fully in this emotion. In what is Known as the shortest verse in the Bible, John tells us that Jesus began to weep. Or as the older versions put it, Jesus wept. He is overcome by sorrow and sadness. To the point where uncontrollable tears from a grown man is the entirely appropriate response to the death of a friend and the grief of all those who loved him. But it's not just Jesus who weeps. Mary does so too, as do Lazarus's other friends. The adage that big boys and girls don't cry is one which it seems can be set aside in the face of the depression of bereavement. But eventually, says Kubleros, if the grieving process is healthy, the depression can begin to lift and give way to a final stage which she calls that of acceptance. She says that if a person has enough time and is given some help in working through the other stages, they will reach a stage where they are accepting of the reality of death, neither angry nor depressed. And in the Lazarus story, Martha seems to be moving towards this stage by the time they come to open the tomb where they have laid Lazarus. Some time has passed. And she is concerned that the body will already have started to decompose. She has, to some extent at least, come to accept the reality and recognizes the natural processes at work in a body that has been laid in the ground. And then, and then, up until this point, this has been a story of death much like any other. The stages of grief are all there, the characters all behave as they should, including Lazarus, whose life has ended. But then the most unexpected thing in the world happens, and Jesus calls Lazarus back from the grave. The point of the story suddenly comes into focus. Is death the end? Does death get this final word on life? mortal? Can these bones live? Yes, it seems that they can. Death is not the end and it does not get the final word on life. It's at this point that the story of the death of Lazarus stops being a carefully observed study on grief and becomes something else altogether. It becomes what John intends it to be within his gospel. It becomes a sign of the Kingdom of God. It is a story that reveals something profoundly important to us about the nature of the new world that is coming into being through the person of Jesus Christ. The point of the resurrection of Lazarus is that when God is involved in the story of someone's life, death is never allowed to have the final word. This has been true in the story of Lazarus' death, and it will be true in the story of Jesus' death. And we are invited to realise that it will be true for us also. The calling forth of Lazarus from his tomb prefigures Jesus' own dramatic desertion of the grave later in the Gospel story. This is why the lectionary puts it at this point as we approach the Holy Week and the story of Easter. Just as Lazarus died, so Jesus will die, and so, I am afraid to say, will each of us in our turn. Symbols of death are all around me as I speak, from the cross on the wall behind me, to the Easter cross beside me, to the bread and the wine before us all. Bodies break, blood is spilled, and mortal life comes to its end. It's not always recognised these days that death is at the heart of the Christian faith. We tend to devote far more of our time focusing on life in all its fullness than we do in confronting the reality of death. And in this, of course, we mirror the world around us, which consigns death to the specialists and dangles the goal of eternal youth before us all. As 70 becomes the new 50... We pursue the dream of health and activity into old age and we deny to ourselves the truth of our own mortality. It was once the case, before modern medical advances, that death was a regular reality for all people. It occurred primarily in the home and it was not unusual to sit with the body of a family member who had died. These days we confine death to hospitals and many of us have never been with a dead body. Within the medical profession, death has become the great enemy, to be avoided at all costs, and we focus our energies on keeping people alive, even sometimes beyond the point where death would be more appropriate. Christianity, with its focus on death at the heart of its faith, can bring us a different perspective on death, which I believe we can offer as a prophetic witness to the world, And that perspective is this. Death is no longer the mortal enemy of humankind. Death's power over people's lives is broken because in Christ we find the hope of resurrection. In Christ we find the promise and hope of eternal life. Now it's important that we don't confuse here eternal life with living forever. They aren't the same thing at all. Eternal life is a quality of life that endures beyond the grave, and it comes as the gift of God given through Christ Jesus. Living forever is simply an attempt to deny the mortality of humanity and is ultimately always going to founder in the face of death. Even Lazarus, called forth from his tomb, would die again. It may well be Lazarus about whom Jesus has to scotch the rumour that he's going to live forever in the last few verses of John's Gospel. But another thing about eternal life is that it can't simply be reduced to pie in the sky when you die. Rather, eternal life is about living eternally each day so that all that is good in life is not lost Eternal life is eternity in each present moment. As William Blake put it, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. God is love and God is eternal. And at our life's conclusion, all that we have ever been, from young child through strong adulthood to infirmity and helplessness of old age, is swept up within the love of God and held in God's eternal loving embrace. This is the Christian perspective on eternal life, and it is Christ's gift to us all in the face of death. It's no coincidence that so many Christians in the medical profession are so involved in palliative care and the hospice movement. In Christ we are enabled to face death without fear because we know that it does not get the final word. In Ezekiel's vision we hear the word of the Lord to those who have been taken hostage by the power of death. And it is a word that echoes down to our own age with startling clarity. Mortal, can these bones live? Is death, ultimately all that there is, is all lost in the face of death? Mortal, can these bones live? There's a West African proverb which says that when an elder dies, a library is burned. And yet... I don't think that is the Christian perspective because within the love of God in Christ nothing that is good is ever lost. Each moment is of eternal value to the Lord of all eternity. Mortal, can these bones live? Yes, we may answer and live eternally. Thanks be to God.